and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It would be a great pleasure to introduce my dear old friend, our Dharma brother, John Bush. John began meditating and studying Buddhism in college. Peace Corps in Thailand got him started on the Theravada path, and later he slightly overcame his aversion to formalism and took up Zen practice at San Francisco Zen Center and here at Berkeley Zen Center. <laughs> where he held a number of practice positions, including project manager, Saturday, and Sashi director. John was ordained and transmitted by Vicar Pratt Heaton and currently co-leads the Mount Diablo Zen group in Pleasant Hill with Leslie Bartholik. John is retired from Berkeley Lab working on sustainable energy, married to fellow Sangha member Colleen and smitten with their Aussie mojo. <laughs> Thanks for speaking with us today, John. Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to see um, many old friends and new friends here. So today I want to speak about uh, what uh, Buddhism um, uh, considers the two truths, uh, the relative truth and the absolute truth. So as people, we tend to see and live in the relative world. We go about our day discerning differences and making choices according to what we see and, and uh, what we understand about things. Uh, we use logic and critical thinking, or we go according to our feelings in the moment to navigate our daily life. We can have glimpses of the absolute through grace or somebody's kindness or uh, some connection with nature or other in other ways as well, art. But we have problems and uh, maybe we find our way to practice as uh, one uh, Zen student once uh, remarked to me, nobody ever takes up Zen practice on a winning streak. <laughs> so taking up Buddhist practice, we become acquainted with uh, deeper truths, such as uh, impermanence and no self and the ubiquity of suffering. But we live in a phenomenal world and when we practice, we start to move among these two ways of seeing things. So one way uh, that's classically uh, uh, described uh, how these uh, two uh, worlds interact is with the wave and water metaphor. So waves have form, they're high or low, they're short or long, um, so they have uh, some characteristics that we can observe. Uh, and you could, you could say that they have a beginning uh, when it's way out there and there's no way to observe a wave. Um, and, uh, and then at some point, uh, the, the water rises, so the wave rises and uh, then it breaks against the shore, which would be considered the end of the wave. Um, but so there's the relative truth of the wave, but the wave is water. It's made of water and it comes from the water and it returns to the water. So in this way, you can think about waves and water as the interplay of the two truths. Shinryu Suzuki um, uh, talks about it in, a, in, a, in another way. 
from um, Not Only So. You may say that it is not possible to be ordinary and holy. When you think this way, your understanding is one-sided. In Japanese, we call someone who understands things from just one side a tanban-kan, someone who carries a board on his shoulder. Because you carry a big board on your shoulder, so imagine a board is right here, I'm, I'm walking around the job site. You cannot see the other side. You think you're just an ordinary human, but if you take the board off, you will understand, oh, I am Buddha too. How can I be both Buddha and an ordinary human? It's amazing. This is enlightenment. When you experience enlightenment, you will understand things more freely. You won't mind whatever people call you. Ordinary mind? Okay, I'm ordinary mind. Buddha? Yes, I am Buddha. How do I come to be both Buddha and ordinary mind? I don't know, but actually I am Buddha and ordinary mind. <laughs> Buddha in its true sense is not different from ordinary mind. An ordinary mind is not something apart from what is holy. This is a complete understanding of ourself. When we practice Zazen with this understanding, that is true Zazen. We will not be bothered by anything. Whatever you hear, whatever you see, that will be okay. To have this feeling, it is necessary to become accustomed to our practice. If you keep practicing, you will naturally have this understanding and this feeling. It will not be just intellectual. You will have the actual feeling. Even though someone can explain what Buddhism is, if he or she does not have the actual feeling, we cannot call them a real Buddha. Only when your personality is characterized by this kind of feeling can we call you a Buddhist. So Thich Nhat Hanh um, talks about how we enter practice through the door of knowledge, perhaps through a Dharma talk or a book like Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. But as we practice and our suffering lessons, eventually our ideas must yield to experience and realize that our life is the path. So, you know, a teaching that uh, we often uh, start to work with in Buddhism, uh, the Four Noble Truths, the first teaching of the Buddha. So generally, uh, this speaks to relative truth. There's suffering, there's causes, uh, there's uh, uh, a way, to, there's ways to alleviate it, and then there's the path. But the Heart Sutra, which we normally chant here in the morning, says there's no suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path. So is that a contradiction? No. Because Avalokiteshvara is speaking in terms of absolute truth. When Avalokiteshvara says there's no suffering, he means suffering is made entirely of non-suffering elements. So those are just uh, two, two um, those are the two truths uh, side by side. So there's, you know, value in um, working with uh, both, both sides, the relative side and the absolute side. And it's not either or, it's both and. And we can't be free and happy just uh, working with one side alone. So you, you can think of it as a progression from relative to absolute, but it doesn't necessarily have to go like this. But according to Donovan Dharma, this is how it goes. First, there's a mountain. 
then there is no mountain, then there is. Okay, you guys don't remember that? Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> it's so deeply embedded, it's, that there's no point in like chuckling. <laughs> and I apologize to those of you who don't know Donovan. Anyway. Um, so first there's a mountain. So it's, we're observing a mountain uh, in, in its relative sense, and that's kind of the normal way that we see mountains. We're driving by them, admiring them, or maybe we really enjoy them walking, going to walk in, in their midst. And, uh, and then through some uh, acquaintanceship with uh, Buddhism, maybe we start to recognize the non-mountain elements of mountains and see that there is no mountain, actually, without everything else that creates a mountain. And then at some point, we start to appreciate, well, gee, it is a mountain after all, but it's truly a mountain in, in this sense because it includes both of these um, truths. So it sounds the same, it's the same words, but there's a totally different feeling to, uh, to it and a, and a um, appreciation. So what keeps us from um, from seeing, say, the absolute truth. Um, there's kind of an initial kind of freeing of um, one's thinking uh, because we tend to operate in a world of form, in a world of ideas. And, you know, through practice, we can uh, find ways to let go of some of our ideas. That's actually the fundamental practice of Sazen. And then we can start to experience things more uh, directly uh, and less um, uh, filtered through our ideas. So when I'm, when I'm practicing with this uh, interplay of the two truths, and I'm, you know, I'm in some difficulty, I have my ego-centered response, and I have an affront or hurt or anger or what have you, and sometimes I'm able to kind of step back from that, just recognize uh, that this situation is something that I'm just uh, reacting to on a relative level and start to open up to the, the bigger picture. And sometimes I'm able to see how this situation, I've helped create it, others have also helped create the situation. Sometimes, uh, I mean, I would say always, it's not just the parties involved, the parties involved. And I can see the suffering that um, is uh, part of my uh, uh, reaction. And, and then I can imagine, perhaps, although I don't know the specifics, I can imagine that uh, the other parties are also uh, reacting from their suffering. And then what comes about from there is some mutual, um, some mutuality of our um, humanness and, and our uh, suffering uh, nature. And then some compassion can arise from me, so from me uh, in this situation. I'm just talking about my side of it. And, um, and then some kind of comfort uh, comes about. Uh, even though, you know, there's the situation still exists that, that triggered me, 
but there's this from this comfort then there's some spaciousness and then I feel like there's some uh, some kind of a path forward that emerges from that and so what Thich Nhat Hanh calls that is seeing interbeing in the situation and that's a way of reconciling these two truths So this um, contemplation of the two truths uh, for me brings to mind um, uh, case 19 in the Muan Khan. Which is um, usually expressed as ordinary mind, it's the way. So I, I know we're all familiar with this. No, well, I, I actually let me step that back. <laughs> Some are familiar with this. I think a lot of the faces in this room <laughs> are familiar with this, but, um, but if you're not familiar, um, uh, here's the case. And I'm, I'm gonna read it from um, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones uh, by Paul Reps. It's a very old Zen book. Um, and it's an interesting um, translation. So in this one, he calls it, everyday life is the path. Joshu asked Nansen, what is the path? Nansen said, everyday life is the path. Joshu asked, can it be studied? Nansen said, if you try to study, you will be far away from it. Joshua asked, if I do not study, how can I know it is the path? Nansen said, the path does not belong to the perception world, neither does it belong to the non-perception world. Cognition is a delusion and non-cognition is senseless. If you want to reach the true path beyond doubt, place yourself in the same freedom as sky. You name it neither good nor not good. At these words, Joshu was enlightened. And then, say it again. Say it again? Could you read it again? Sure. Joshu asked Nansen, Joshu is the student, Nansen is the teacher, what is the path? Nansen said, everyday life is the path. Joshu asked, can it be studied? Nonsense said, if you try to study it, you will be far away from it. Joshua asked, if I do not study, how can I know it is the path? Nonsense said, the path does not belong to the perception world. Neither does it belong to the non-perception world. Cognition is a delusion and non-cognition is senseless. If you want to reach the true path beyond doubt, place yourself in the same freedom as sky. You name it neither good nor not good. At these words, Joshua was enlightened. So Mumans, it's the Muman Khan, uh, is this collection. So Muman's comment is nonsense could melt Joshu's frozen doubts at once when Joshu asked his questions. I doubt though, if Joshin reached the point that Nansen did, he needed 30 more years of study. And the poem, the verse is, in spring, hundreds of flowers, in autumn, a harvest moon, in summer, a refreshing breeze. In winter, snow will accompany you. If useless things do not hang in your mind, any season is a good season for you. <laughs> it's kind of a rousing, you know, uh, poem, isn't it? And so uh, apt, given that we've just um, celebrated the harvest moon today, the Zendo, with the Bodhisattva ceremony. 
Another time at the pump? Yeah. <laughs> okay. In spring, hundreds of flowers. In autumn, a harvest moon. In summer, a refreshing breeze. In winter, snow will accompany you. If useless things do not hang in your mind, any season is a good season for you. So what is this ordinary mind or everyday life? Ordinary mind is the way everyday, li everyday life is the path. So it's not, they're, they're not referring to um, our notion at old idea-filled mind, even though that is fairly ordinary. I think that they're referring to a mind that's um, it's more of a kind of, well, it's the, the translation of this word ordinary is actually usual or normal, but it's a, but that's also <laughs> Uh, normal in what sense? So it's a it's a mind that's um, engaged, um, and at one with its activity. So this is uh, what's they're pointing at, and it's you know it's the work period mind. Right? You're in work period, you're practicing, you're given a task and you engage it in this um, mindful way. And you become one with your activity. That's the ordinary mind that they're uh, speaking to. Sekita, who has another um, book of commentary on the Khan calls it an a mind of innocence. So it's uh, innocence and a well-balanced, harmonious state. So he points at the mind of a child that a child possesses um, in their earlier years that before self-consciousness and separation. So it's it's a mind that's not full of our normal, um, well, I'm using the, the, the word normal, so I don't want to confuse the, the mind that we adults uh, walk around with, typically. Robert Aitken says, what Joshu is actually asking is, how do I practice? So that's helpful, I think. And in usual sort of koan fashion, um, doesn't really give you a place to stand, right? It's not through the perception world or the non-perception world. So it's, it's an interplay, it's something we have to practice with. So Thich Nhat Hanh talks about four notions that impede our experiencing absolute truth. If we're coming from the relative and wanting to uh, go beyond that, go deeper. Um, there's notions that we have that 
kind of uh, get in the way. So those are self, human being, living being, and lifespan. So self is made of non-self elements. I know you guys recently were studying the Genjo Koan, so that's pretty clear. The Genjo Koan is, is a, a deeply uh, speaking to that. Humans are made of and depend on non-human elements. Uh, none of us you know, would be alive and could, could be here today without everything that supports us. Uh, all the natural systems, all the, the physics, the chemistry, all the beings, all the materials, the entire the entirety of it all is supporting us, and that's the you know the essence of deep ecology. And I think that's also the the way that uh, it's the way that I experienced the absolute uh, in my early days when I would be out in the world, particularly in nature in the mountains and just like experiencing it directly, how everything there was supporting me. And I was part of it. Another uh, notion that we have is um, that you know the world is made of living beings and inanimate objects, but we see that you know living beings are made made of non-living elements, and um, and uh, we can develop uh, a sense and an appreciation of things, things which are not living but actually are living, and we see that things are not things. One way that I'm painfully experiencing that now, Colleen and I are uh, gonna move out of our house temporarily, so everything in there is gonna get moved. So everything in there is um, something that I'm interacting with. And I realize that, you know, they're not really my things. They're things that have me because I have to pay attention to them. Yeah, I have to care for them and decide what, you know, where, where things are going, you know, keeping or not keeping, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they totally have me. <laughs> and, and I, and I also appreciate so many of these things, even though like some of them I haven't looked at in 30 years. That's how long I've been in my house. And, um, Colleen doesn't even know this, but I've decided on the box of the three boxes of letters. So I have all these old letters, right? and uh, and I've been sort of you know mulling over: do I keep them? What do I do with these letters, which I have not looked at in thirty years? But somehow they have a life in me because I'm still, I, I, I had to think about what am I gonna do with these letters? And what, you know, what should become of them? So anyway, um, I've decided to let them go. They're going back to, you know, back to the earth, back to all the elements. And so I, they're not things to me, you know, they represent um, somebody else's um, 
communication with me often of love. So there's love involved in, in, in that. And, but the love isn't really in the letter. <laughs> but it's also part of the letter, right? And it, it's pointing to, um, to that which circulates around and, um, and it's part of the whole dynamic workings of everything. So I, I don't, I actually don't see things as things. I'm really, and that's, I mean, that's come about through practice, but also I'm an engineer by training. And so I have kind of a different relationship with things. I kind of like, I, I like to know like how they are, how they came to be, you know, how they were put together and how they work, why they work the way they do, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of go into, into depth with things uh, sometimes. And, you know, for me, there's sort of a deep appreciation because actually what that represents is human civilization. You know, these things, you know, say products, things that were manufactured, let's say, or created, you know, artistically. So things are not really things. But I think it's helpful to, to you know, to, to see that and recognize it. And I think, you know, some of the ills of our society are connected with the idea that things are just things. And um, so we're w willing to treat them in, in, in ways that are, um, say, not respectful and not um, appreciating, you know, what they've brought and, or, you know, and appreciation doesn't mean it's always good, right? Appreciating the bad that comes out of some things that we've created with, with unintended consequences. So, um, I think if we understand things more deeply, and yeah, then a lot of um, problems go away, just as the previous two notions I was speaking of self and, you know, just a human-centered view. So the last notion that um, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, talks about is uh, that impedes um, our recognition of our uh, absolute is lifespan, and this is a real big one for us. Um, particularly as some of us are, you know, getting towards uh, what's, you know, commonly, you know, uh, referred to as our lifespan. Um, but Really, our life didn't begin with our physical conception or birth. Everything that came before uh, brought about our physical existence. And at the time of our physical extinction, everything continues. So I think like looking at the two truths, looking at our own death is one way to grapple with the two truths. Shinryu Suzuki uh, gave the metaphor of a waterfall for our life. So it's another water metaphor that's, I think really, at least is, I found it really evocative. So, Before we, before, let's say, before we existed, we're the river. Or the river is everything. We're just, everything is in there in the river. Then you go over the edge and it's a waterfall. And then the, the water uh, separates into all these little droplets. So, 
a, a droplet is you. So you're part of the water, and all of a sudden you're cast out into the into the air, into the void, and you're the little droplet that's falling. And the falling time is your lifespan. Luckily, ours is a little longer than those water than those water droplets typically are. Um, matter of seconds, and then at the end. The water all gathers and the river continues on. So this is, I think this is, um, this is a, some imagery of, you know, maybe what the absolute is, of what our actual life is, that, you know, can be helpful. And we used to, um, Sometimes we would use that metaphor uh, at the Zen Hospice Project, where I served for a few years um, uh, people who were uh, uh, at the end of their life, and uh, the volunteers would, would come around and would, we would serve at the bedside. And sometimes uh, someone uh, was looking for some. Um, way to understand what they were uh, you know going through what's happening to them and we, we used to have this expression it was up on, a, on an altar so um, um, I think it's a nice it's a nice way of there's the absolute of the river then there's the phenomenal experience, um, the temporal experience of um, falling as a little individual droplet. And you may, you don't, in that time, as a droplet, you don't necessarily see yourself as coming from the river or going to the river again. You just, you're just having your life. So I think a very um, deep practice is to see if you can think of your life that way, your lifespan that way. Um, continuing on with this um, uh, fan favorite of death, um, topic. Uh, I want to share the nine contemplations of Atisha. You're, have you heard these? Some of you have. Okay. The youngest person in the room is shaking his head yes. <laughs> wow. That's pretty good. I'm definitely encouraged by that. So Tisha was a 11th century Tibetan scholar. And um, these contemplations uh, bring us to uh, the full awareness of death. So the first contemplation is death is inevitable. Our lifespan is decreasing continuously. Human life expectancy is uncertain. Death will come regardless of whether we are prepared for it. Death has many causes. The human body is fragile and vulnerable. Our material resources cannot help us at the moment of death. Our friends cannot keep us from
from death. And our own body cannot help us at the time of death. Really hammering it home, huh? There's no way out. Every one of those points, I'm sure, was somebody's attempt to escape. So it's very understandable and, and um, normal to want to avoid thinking about this and also just, I mean, to avoid it, period. And, uh, and the fear that's really behind our avoidance. And it's really, you know, put you in a corner, these nine contemplations. And if you take it in, it's a reality that just must be confronted. No escape. And all of these are expressing, these are all understandable and express expressions in the relative um, world. But it brings you into contact without um, um, recourse into the absolute. So how, how does it, how could it do that? So one thing is that paradoxically, uh, it can give you an appreciation for the life we have. So knowing this really deeply, taking it in, not, not avoiding it can make you appreciate where we are, here we are. We're all sitting here in the sundown or in our space online. And that, you could call that grace, a sense of grace that out of this really deeply threatening uh, and difficult reality of our life, of our certain death. Something really um, beautiful comes out of it, can come out of it. And also like an urgency that we need to spend our time well. So how many of us waste our time because we're not thinking about this? <laughs> Continuously wasting our time, but if you're really like thinking about these contemplations, you'll want to use your time, and then also like appreciating what uh, we have, what like uh, how our body is supporting us now. Um, all the things it can do. Actually, almost every night now when I lie down and I, and I have my head on my pillow and I'm just you know, starting to go to sleep, I almost always have this thought of, wow, it's just incredible to just be comfortable lying here. How incredible that is. And you know, it's not true for everyone. It's not true all the time. Sometimes there's pain and whatnot, but just like this incredible feeling of, wow, I can just, why here and I'm just in comfort. So, and that's really like something to appreciate. 
and of course all of our friends and all of the things and how the whole universe uh, supports us, I think. So <laughs> that's one way that I think this um, interplay of the absolute and the relative, they can, um, these two truths um, can work, we can work with it and it can work on us. So we turn the we can turn the wheel uh, that way or be turned. So I think that's yeah. We have five minutes if you'd like to. Yeah, I think I'd like to uh, see if anybody has anything to share. Um, stimulated by this or or not i'll pass the mic around for anyone in the zendo with a question and if you're online please raise your digital hand and uh john if you can keep an eye for digital hands if not i will if not uh mary beth just let us know if we're ignoring you yes i can i can't necessarily see everybody that's uh, if there's you know further pages but um uh, I think I've heard that if hands get raised, then uh, they they do appear on this uh, screen. But anyway, find a chance to say hello to the online folks. Yeah. The metaphor of the sky. Is that the or what, how to understand the metaphor of the sky, so how I'm taking with it. Which, which metaphor of the sky? Oh, you're talking about from the koan? Yes. Yeah, I would say plausibly. I mean, I think it's pointing to a, a vastness, um, a boundlessness. Um, that we're supposed to join. Uh, well, we're already joined, I think. It's just, you know, do we, do we see it? Do we feel it? I, I actually love the um, Shinryu Suzuki uh, kind of emphasis on the feeling part. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I think that's pointing to kind of the intuitive sense that we cultivate in this practice. And um, yeah, so the feeling, so, you know, do you feel that? Do you feel this sort of vastness um, in, in, the, in your experience ever? Colleen? Um, I can vouch for the fact that you like to know how things work. And I, I really admire that mind because I don't have that mind. But I'm wondering if you could relate that to this, this idea of the relative and the absolute, because there are absolutely times when you're not going to know how something's working. And how do you practice with that? And can you connect that with these ideas of the two truths? Um, it's not that I have to know how things work. Um, I, it's more that like I appreciate, I mean, it's, I'm, you know, you could say I'm a sort of a hobbyist engineer because really I don't, I mean, there's different levels of understanding things and, um, you know, there's, uh, untold countless levels that I, I never, you know, get to um, in my understanding of things. But um, I think there's a sort of a um, there's a wanting to be competent, and that's you know that's sort of a relative thing, right? I want to be I want to feel competent to. Uh, to work with something, say a tool or, or machinery or 
something like that. Um, and and yeah, and then that's also could be a trap, right? To 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 feel say pride and being able to you know work something well be good at it and um sometimes you and i i think the reason why you're asking that is sometimes you and i get into little tussles about it because because i want you to understand how something works better than you apparently are and um <laughs> yeah, and you don't care. You just yeah, and um, uh, sometimes that bothers me. But again, this is all kind of like phenomenal stuff. But um, but I think for me also, it, it's part of my appreciating it, appreciating and appreciating the you know the people and the uh, that. Um, conceived it and, and put it together and all the people who um, uh, brought the materials forth from the ground, from living things um, that, uh, that come together for this, this uh, machinery to work. So I'm, you know, appreciating the interbeing of it, let's say. Um, and uh, and I feel like I'm, I'm paying respect to it. So it's a little like bowing and making offerings. It, it's, it's kind of a, let's say, a more um, prosaic way that I can um, pay my respects. So that, that's part of, yeah, that's part of the preoccupation with, you know, wanting to know how things work. <laughs> Anyway, it's time. Oh, it's time. Okay. Is, okay. is there anyone online? There is one person online. Let's do one online. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I don't. See, your name isn't appearing on the on the screen, and I don't recognize you. But please um, ask your question. It's Libby, John. Can oh, you I hear me? Yeah, I can. Hey. Good, John. I just wanted to say to thank you for a deeply moving and rich talk. And I particularly want to thank you for taking us on that journey uh, confronting death. And also, thank you so much for reminding us that in death there's life. And in, the, in our life, uh, there's death. Thank you so much.